0: Thank you, and please be seated. I encourage you to take a copy of the Word of God and open to Mark chapter five as we can continue our consideration through this gospel. Sister Ned, it's so good to see you. Mark chapter five. <clears throat> Let us hear the word of God. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one can bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the uh, demon possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea then came one of the rulers of the synagogue Jairus by name and Go in peace, and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. (laughs) That's fine. That was a a real cry out there. (laughs) Uh, Some came from the ruler's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kume, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And He strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. May God be pleased to bless the reading of His Word and let His people say, Amen. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this gathered assembly. We pray now that You would feed Your sheep, that You would feed Your lambs, Lord, that You would open Your Word to us. And us, Lord, to your word, grant me all that is needed to stand in this place and to speak from your word with understanding, clarity, and authority. And give your people ears to hear what is said. And may we rejoice together in our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we do pray. Amen. We have noted in previous messages from the gospel the progression and order that is fairly obvious as you read in the gospel of Mark, but in chapter 1, verse 15, there is a declaration of the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." And then in Mark chapter 1, verse six uh, verse 16, excuse me, through chapter 3, verse 34, we saw a demonstration of the kingdom of God through a series of miracles. And that series, I think, if you look at chapter uh, 3, verse 27, is, um, is somewhat summarized for us. What is the point of these, these miracles? What is, what is Jesus teaching and saying in verse 27, we have this response when the scribes came down and they accused Jesus of being possessed, and he tells them that's just, that's silly. The house divided against itself cannot stand. And then he talks about, um, about Satan not being divided, and then, then he makes this statement, verse 27. I think it's sort of a, in some ways, a summary statement of what has been happening in their presence, in the presence of the people he says, "But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house." In other words, what we've seen to this point is a clash of two kingdoms: kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Christ has pronounced the kingdom of God as present, and then he begins a series of miracles. And now there's something of an explanation, if you please, of what these miracles are about. There is this clash, but in the clash, darkness has not overpowered light. For the king has come. And then we then we notice that you go from the demonstration in, in uh, the chapter three or verse chapter one through chapter three. And the, you come into chapter four and you have an explanation. You have an explanation of the nature of the kingdom of God, and you have that through a series of parables, and in those parables. Jesus compares the kingdom of God to basically a growing seed, and that was necessary because no doubt there was a misconception on the part of the disciples and the people in general concerning the very nature of the kingdom of God, so he says it's like a, a man that plants seed, and he gives various, various um, parables using that specific uh, uh, analogy. Then in chapter four, verse thirty-five through chapter five, verse uh, forty-three, the, the fifth chapter we read today, and beginning at the end of chapter four where we were last Lord's Day, we see a revelation of the King of the Kingdom by another series of miracles. So remember, we have a a, a declaration, we have a revelation, uh, excuse me, a demonstration, we have an explanation, and now we have a, a further revelation concerning the king of the kingdom of God. And he does this by a series of miracles. Chapter 4, verse 35 through chapter 5, the calming of the sea. This king reigns over the forces of nature. Then we have a miracle of the exorcism of legion that we read this morning. This king reigns over the powers of darkness. Then we have the miracle of the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. This king reigns over sickness and disease. And then we have the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. This king reigns over death itself. And so we have this this progression of thought till we get uh, to where we are in our study in Mark. Now, you'll notice in Mark chapter 5, there are three independent miracles that are recorded. Verses 1 through 20. There is the miracle of the exorcism of legion. The man who is possessed with many demons, legion. We'll get maybe more into that in, 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 a, in a week or two. In verses 24 through 34, we have the healing of the woman with an issue of blood. And then we have in verses 35 through 43, even though there's an interruption here in this miracle, we have the miracle of the resurrection of, of the leader of the synagogue, Jairus, Jairus' 12-year-old daughter who's raised from the dead. Now what I want to do today, with God's help, is I want to consider Mark 5 as as a collection. I want to look at the the collection of these three miracles. So I'm not going to try to spend a lot of time in each miracle. That's not not what I'm trying to do today. We can do that in in future weeks. What I want to do today is is what I often think of is I want to get about 40,000 feet And I want to do a flyover of Mark chapter 5. And in doing that, I want us to consider the bigger picture here before we come back and we we dig into some of the specifics of these miracles. So today I want to get up high, fly over the chapter, and I want us to notice uh, some specific and general truths about these miracles that are recorded in Mark chapter 5. Now we say that we believe in plenary inspiration. What do we mean by that? We believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That's inspiration. That's that's God-breathed. The Scriptures come from the very breath of God. But we go a step further. We talk about plenary inspiration. And by that we mean that the very words themselves in the Holy Scripture are inspired by God. It's not just the thought that is inspired. The very words themselves are inspired. So we we make that declaration, that definition, that distinction. We believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture. The very words of the Bible themselves are God-breathed. The words matter. Now, we also believe and confess in what Sometimes is defined as an organic unity within the Scripture. Let me explain it this way. We often say that Scripture explains Scripture, right? Well, how can that be? How can I get an explanation of something in Genesis, let's say, in the book of Revelation? From the book of Revelation. Well, we believe there's an organic unity. There is, a, there is a singleness, a wholeness. It's like a body. My body is, is, is a body, and yet I have parts of my body. I have a nose, hands, fingers, toes, and so forth. Those are the various members of my body, but they all go together to constitute a body. And so we look at Scripture and we go, well, there's 66 books. But they all together constitute the body called the corpus of the Word of God. And so we believe in plenary inspiration of Scripture. We believe in the organic unity of Scripture. Now, Dr. Renahan, a couple of weeks ago, made this very point from this pulpit. I'm going to quote what he said. He was talking about the Psalms. And he said, The Psalms are not simply a collection of 150 poems, but they have been specifically placed in a certain order and in a certain way to influence. They have context. And he explained Psalm 15 from surrounding Psalms. Scripture interprets Scripture. That's that's an organic unity. That's a that's a singleness of a wholeness of the Scripture. Well, we have that in Mark 5. I mean it to me is one of the classic cases of this, right here in Mark chapter 5. Is a vivid demonstration of this principle. That's what I'm after today. Now let's look at the context, this, this unity, if you please the singleness of these three various miracles of jesus let's begin by inquiring and asking the question what are miracles we hear a lot of people use that word today it's a miracle what is a miracle is a miracle the same thing as some i think by definition it would be strange by some paranormal occurrence is that what a miracle is well, yeah, one sense of the word, yes, that's a miracle, because a miracle are paranormal because they're beyond the scope of scientific understanding. You can't explain how Christ turns water to wine by scientific investigation. You just can't do it. So yeah, in that sense, it's beyond scientific explanation. so yeah, in one sense, it's paranormal, but is that all that a miracle is? No. I would say that the miracles of Jesus are not merely some paranormal event that science can't explain. Why are certain acts of Jesus defined as miracles? Everything he did is not defined as a miracle. You know, when he went through Samaria, the scripture talks about he needs to go through Samaria. Well, that's the most straight path to get to where he's going from north to south. Is that a miracle that he passed through Samaria? No, There's nothing un- well, there was something unusual about it, but there was nothing unusual about him physically walking through Samaria. So why are certain acts of Jesus defined as miracles? Is it, is it because they were impressive, unexpected actions? That he comes to the house of Mary and Mothra and their brother is dead and they say if you'd have been here our brother had need not die and yet he performs a miracle. He resurrects Lazarus from the dead. That's an unexpected event. Is it simply a miracle? Because we define a miracle by a suspension or an overruling of natural law. If you get on the roof and you step off you fall down. The law of gravity, you fall. If you get on the roof and you step out and you stand in space and you walk across the air, that's a miracle because the law of nature that God himself has established has been suspended. It has been overruled by the authority of God. When Jesus steps out of the boat and walks on the water in another occasion, the natural laws that God himself has put in, put in place are, sus- are suspended. They're overruled by the authority of God. So is a miracle simply that there's a suspension of natural law? Well, yes. It definitely, that's definitely true. God overrules natural law in cases of a miracle, but I would suggest that they are more. They are more than a paranormal event. They are more than this, this, the mere suspension of God's natural laws. Maybe another way of asking the question is, why did Jesus perform miracles? Why did he perform them? Is that he's going around Galilee and he sees a bad, sad situation and he performs a miracle because he cares? Yes, that's true. In fact, often that's what we're told, that he looks upon the people and he has compassion. He has pity upon the people. And then he performs some miracle. But is that why Jesus performed a miracle? Well, in one sense, yes. But is that the totality of it? Or do the miracles of Jesus have a greater purpose? So let's take this inquiry another step. How did the people who saw the miracles of Jesus, the people of first century Palestine, how did these people understand the miracles of Jesus? Did they see them simply as a paranormal event or the suspension of God's law? Well, yes, but was there more? I think in many cases there was much more. In Mark chapter 4 that we were in last week, Jesus stilled the storm. What's, what did the apostles and the disciples in that book, what did they take away from that miracle? They go, oh, that's a great, great thing that he's done. He's, yeah, they did that, but what did they take away from that? Was that the totality of what they took away? No, they are in fear and they're asking each other, who is this? Who is this? That even the elements of nature listen to him. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 7 for just a moment. And I begin at verse 11, Luke 11, excuse me, Luke 7:11. I should be able to get that 7:11. Luke seven eleven. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him, and as, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now here's what I mentioned a minute ago. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Yes. He's in this area. Yes. He sees a very desperate situation. Yes. He has compassion. But is that why, is that the only answer to why he performs this miracle he's about to perform? Well, let's read on. He said to the woman, Do not weep. Verse 14. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. How did the people who saw that miracle interpret it? Oh, this must be a great prophet. God is in our presence. That's how they interpreted it. Not simply a suspension of natural law. Something more than that was happening. Look over to John chapter 3 for just a moment. John 3, the first two verses. How did a religious leader of the day of Jesus interpret the miracles of Jesus? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why do you know that, Nicodemus? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. How did Nicodemus interpret the miracles of Jesus? That Jesus is from God and he is a great teacher sent from God. That's how he interpreted them. So he took them beyond... Oh, isn't this wonderful? Jesus is a really compassionate guy, and he walks around and he sees people in need, and he meets their needs. It's kind of a social gospel idea. But he went beyond that. He said, oh, we know you've come from God, because nobody can do what you're doing except they come from God. Now, How did the people interpret him? What is a miracle? How did the people interpret him? Thirdly, how did Jesus himself interpret and understand the miracles he performed? Well, let's go back to Mark for a moment. Mark chapter 2. And let's look at verse 5. And then verses 9 through 11. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, that's the way that he goes about healing this man. But let's go down to verse 9. Because when he says that, he's accused of blasphemy. Who does this man think he is? He can say to somebody, your sins are forgiven you. And then in verse 9, Jesus answers their objection by saying, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. Which is easier to do? Well, as Pastor Tyler preached that. He pointed out it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. And that's you know He could say that. That's simple enough. But look how Jesus interprets the miracle. But that you may know that the Son of Man, Christ Jesus, the Lord, the King of the Kingdom, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, to forgive sins he said to the paralytic i say to you arise pick up your bed and go home as ferguson writes if the word of healing uh, has been effective surely his word of forgiveness must have been effective too this miracle jesus interprets this miracle as explaining to the people This miracle is all about the reality that Christ has the power, the authority to forgive sins. It's redemptive in its very essence. And so these miracles, and I would suggest these miracles in chapter 5, declare Jesus' authority, His power, His willingness, His ability to save. You might think of them as object lessons of redemption. The way we teach children is by object lessons. Well, Jesus is using object lessons, as it were, so that we can get it. Well, let's take it one more step so that that you can say, yeah, he's right about that. What does the Bible teach me about the miracles of Jesus? I've looked at how the people of the first century interpreted them. I've looked at how Christ has interpreted them. I've looked at how, uh, now we want to look at how the Bible itself interprets these miracles so that we would understand when we come to mark five what we, how do how are we to look at these miracles in john turn back to the gospel of john for a moment in john chapter uh, two verse 11 this is following the miracle of the um of the wedding at Canaan, where he fills up the the vats with the good wine. And this is the divine description of what's just happened. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God breathed. The very words are God breathed. Verse eleven This the first of his signs. It didn't say miracle. And in fact, John will consistently use the word signs for miracle. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Notice John chapter 2, verse 18. So the, the Jewish leadership is questioning what authority did he have to go into the temple? And overturn tables and run animals out. What authority? Jesus, who, who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing this? And they ask him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Give us a sign of who you are, of your authority. And, of course, Jesus answers them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. I'll raise it up. You want a sign? You want to know who I am? I am the Son of God. I am the giver of life. And the sign you will see is the very resurrection of Christ. The very miracle that attests to that is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's Romans 1, by the way, when Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ. Then notice verse 23, same chapter 1, chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the Signs. Throughout the Gospel of John, the miracles of Jesus are referred to as signs. Some 17 times, John will employ that word when he's defining a miracle. Why? Why did Jesus do these? What is their point? What do they talk about? What object lesson am I to take from it? Turn to John chapter 20. I'll not go through all the other references in the, in the Gospel, but Go home and take out a concordance and look up John, look up the word sign. And you'll see that's the way that John defines a miracle time and time and time again. But now we, now we jump ahead to John chapter 20, uh, uh, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs, miracles, but signs is the word here in the Greek. He did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. They're not contained in the Gospel of John. They're not contained in the Gospels. They're not contained in the New Testament. We don't have everything that Jesus did recorded for us. So John says, He did many other signs. They were witnesses, but they're not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Why did Jesus do the miracles? Why are the miracles recorded in the Scripture? What is the interpretation of the miracles? What are the meaning of the miracles of Jesus? They are signs that He indeed is God, and has the authority and power of salvation. Now, a couple of quotes. And these are on your notes. We believe that that miracles are actually historical events. They actually happen in time and space. One day Jesus actually said to the sea of Galilee, Peace, be still. That really happened. And the sea really got still. But we also believe that beyond them being just simply the suspension or overruling of natural law or paranormal occurrence that these signs demonstrate his power, his authority, and his willingness to save. They are signs of redemption. Now, Richard Phillips writes, These miracles are not merely illustrations of Christ's goodness and power, but are living sermons regarding the nature and purpose of his saving work. And then Vern Poitras writes, Jesus walked on water. He healed a blind man. He turned water into wine. More than just displays of His divine power, Jesus' miracles signify something deeper. They are windows into God's grand story of redemption. Now, with that in our mind, let's go to Mark 5. Let's note the variables in these miracles. They involve people of different ages and different sexes. I know from Mark chapter 5, verse 42, that the daughter of Jairus is 12. I have a child, 12 years old. I don't know the exact age of the, I, we refer to him as the wild man of Gadara, of the, of the man who's possessed. I don't know his exact age. I'm not told. Nor am I told the exact age of the woman, but I know this, they're adults. I have a child It's specifically pointed out to me, she's 12 years old. And I also have a man and I have a full-grown man and a full-grown woman. These are the people that are involved in the miracles that Jesus performed. Different ages, different sexes, men, women. They involve different social standings. I know that Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue. That's a position that you just didn't walk into. That is a position of respect and of authority in an article in Bible Truth by uh, James Freeman he writes in provincial synagogues the ruler was supreme no one was eligible to this office until he had been certifi- uh, until he had a certificate excuse me from the great sanhedrin that he possessed the requisite qualifications of his election however was by the members of the synagogue it was his duty to supervise all matters connected with worship so Jairus is a man of great renowned and respect in the area of, of Gadara well excuse me he's back he's crossed back over into Galilee pardon me back in, in Galilee Capernaum. I don't know anything else much about Jairus but I know he's a man of some authority some repute good repute and probably of some wealth how about the wild man of Gadara I have no idea. I have no idea who this man was before he ended up living in the tombs. I know at this point in Mark 5, he is living in the tombs. He's often naked. He cuts himself and he screeches during the night and day. And people are afraid of him. They've tried to bind him with chains, but that doesn't work. I, I think of this, I think of the scariest, most deranged street junkie you could ever come across. And I think of the wild man in goes and go. He trumps that guy. I think, uh, Brother Rick, I actually thought of you when I was thinking about this in your time in San Diego as a police officer, probably the the, the most frightening person you ever came in contact with that's deranged and wild. This man's more than that. He is, he is wild. Now, who was he before this? I have no idea, as far as I know. He could, have, he could have been a member in good standing in the, you know, in the synagogue. I don't know who this man is. But I know at this point he's at the bottom of the, of the socioeconomic scale. Who's this woman? Well, I don't know. I'm not really told who this woman is. She could, have, she could have been a woman of means. She could have been a widow. I don't know if she is or not. I know she hired physicians. How many physicians did she hire? I don't know. But I know at this point in her life she'd spent everything she had and she's not better, she's worse. Sproul writes that she was an unclean as a leper. No one was allowed to touch her or her clothes lest he or she too become unclean. So this woman was suffering not just physical misery but social and religious misery because she had been banished from the presence of the people of God. <clears throat> I spent some time this past week pouring through the book of Leviticus. Especially if you go into Leviticus chapters 12 through 15. And Kevin DeYoung writes of those chapters. He says, These chapters are about fluids and sores and discharges and mildew and scabs and mold and blood and pus and disease. And when you read them, you want to go, Phew. Well, that describes who this woman is. And who she was, I don't know. But I know who she is here. And here she's broke, she's a pariah. She's an outcast from society. Now let's think about the that, that's some of the differences of what we see. We see adult children, men, women, social standing, no social standing. We could go on with that. But let's think now about some of the commonality <clears throat> of what we see in Mark 5. And I think this is the demonstration, this is the object lesson of salvation right here when you start looking at the commonality. The demoniac, I would suggest you demonstrates. We had a great lesson this morning on sin, and I think it's God's providence. I told Pastor Tyler's providence that he taught on sin last minute. Uh, Brother Ryan's sick, not able to be here and teach in the last second. Brother, but uh, excuse me, Pastor uh, Tyler stepped in with a lesson from uh, Free um, Hill for Real, and it was on sin. A great, great lesson. I thought, wow, that's where I'm going to be. Isn't that good? It's just God's providence. But I would suggest that this demoniac demonstrates the bondage of sin. When I think about why did Christ perform miracles? Why does the Bible say he performed miracles? What are they signs of? Okay. Ferguson writes, Not all men are demon possessed, yet by nature all men are ruled by dark and sinister forces. How do we define the lost? We define the lost as children of wrath, the scripture does. Controlled by Satan and of unsanctified passions. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is what? A slave to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, the lost, the lost are defined as enslaved to sin. Second Peter 2 Peter 2:19 the lost are defined as slaves of corruption 2 Corinthians 4:4 4, 4, the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 the lost are described as quote, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience The point is, the lost, the unconverted, they are like like the demoniac in that they are subject. They are subjects of the domain of Satan, their darkness. Their lives are wasteful, destructive lives. Holiness, happiness, brother. There is no holiness and there is no happiness. Two things God created us for. And they are beyond the help of anybody. No man can free the one who is in the bondage of sin from his sin. We just can't do it. The woman with the issue of blood, I think, demonstrates the pollution of sin. Read to him from the old theologian John Gill. He says, The woman is an emblem of a sinner in a state of nature as her disease was in itself an uncleanness and rendered her unclean by the law whereby she was unfit for the company and society of others. So the disease of sin with which all are infected is a pollution in itself and a defiling nature. All the members of the body and all the powers and faculties of the soul are polluted with it. And the whole man is filthy in the sight of God. So when we talk from a reform position about total depravity, we talk about how sin is just throughout the being. Not only are my actions defiled, my mind is defiled, my heart is defiled, my will is defiled. I cannot rescue myself. From my defilement I am dirty the word we used in trail life Thursday night I read them a passage from the Proverbs about lying lips house and house an abomination to God and I asked the boys I said what is abomination that's a big word what does abomination mean and had some different thoughts one little, one little guy raised his hand and said filthy I said that's a great that's a great word for abomination you know what abomination is it's filthy it's the nastiest Filthiest thing that you can imagine. And sin trumps that. In Isaiah chapter 64, 6, we read, We have all become like one who is unclean, like this woman. We've all like that. And all our righteous deeds are but a polluted garment. Ezekiel 16, And when I passed by you, and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live! I said to you in your blood, live. Unregenerate sinners are unclean. They're spiritually filthy. They're just nasty in the eyes of God. You know, it's it's interesting. I'm kind of shifting a little bit here, but time and again, Christ will break social norms by interacting with the disenfranchised, the filthy the low life. The first miracle we have in Mark, you know what he does? He touches the the beer, the, the 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 casket, whatever you want to call it. They're carrying a dead man on. He can't do that according to ceremonial law. He's unclean. Very first thing he does is touch it. does he do here? He goes to this child who's dead and he raises her. But he takes her by the hand you couldn't do that according to ceremonial law that declares him unclean and that brings us to the daughter of jairus who demonstrates the end result of death excuse me the end result of sin is death she's not sick she was apparently when the messenger first got to jesus but that's not what jesus goes to address jesus goes to address death Verse 35 of 5, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. And that's followed up with a question. Why trouble the teacher any further? She's beyond hope now. We say as long as there's breath, there's hope. Basically, they come up to her and go to Christ, to, to, to Jairus, really. Jesus hears them. And they say to Jairus, she's dead. Don't bother him anymore. There's nothing anybody can do. It's done. Mike Reitliff writes, lost people are not drowning. They're dead. They are as entombed at the bottom of the sea as the over 1,100 men still entombed in the USS Arizona at the bottom of Pearl Harbor. The only hope of the lost is for God to reach down. Pull their corpses to the surface and breathe life into them. She's not hurt. She's not wounded. She's not merely disabled. She's dead. Colossians, we read in chapter 2, verse 13, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision, the uncleanness of your flesh, hath he God quickened made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, Ephesians chapter two verse one, and you hath he quickened, who were dead in your trespasses and sins ephesians two five even so when we were dead in sin, hath he Christ quickened us together john five twenty five truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now Hear, when who the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, what I'm suggesting is pretty clear, isn't it? When I read the miracles of Mark 5, I do this flyover. I look at every one of these situations. I go, every one of those are descriptive of sin. They involve different people, different status, different ages, different sexes. Different situations, but they all are used in the Bible to tell me and define for me what sin is. It's being under the power of the wicked one. It's being unclean. It's being dead in my sin. And of course, the other commonality we find here is who was the answer? Who alone (laughs) was the answer to every one of these situations? One answer. Men tried to bind the wild man. Didn't, didn't work. The woman had spent everything she had on physicians. Didn't work. And now all these people that are gathered at the house of Jairus, now they're lamenting and wailing because she's dead. Why are you bothering him? Nobody can do anything now. Every case, Christ and Christ alone was the answer. Every other method, every other expense, every other attempt had failed. And in fact, as you read these situations, not only had they failed, the situations had grown worse. But Christ rescued them all. Two simple observations in closing. Christ alone can save. I read again from John. Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book. But these are written. And I'm going to include Mark in that today, okay? But these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So why is this in Mark? Mark? so that you will know who christ is and you'll know who you are and that christ can save whatever your situation and our situations here vary we heard it in a prayer request today whatever our situation whatever our need whatever your sin they're not greater than the blood of christ than the Lord of In the glory. And the words of the hymnist Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin and if you think I'm not speaking to you because you believe let me remind you we daily need to repent I'm daily defined in these situations and the second point not only can Christ save but Christ is willing to help to save to rescue We'll probably get to this when we look at the wild man of Gadara. Maybe we'll examine it a little bit more, but I'll go ahead and say it now. Jesus crossed the sea, faced a storm, went to the other side to an area that's Gentile, an unclean area. Why? One man. One man. The wild man of Gadara. He frees that man, and what does he do? He gets back in the boat and he goes back across the sea back to the region of Galilee. Is he willing? One person is who he goes and saves. He responds to a woman in a sea of people. Even his disciples really, <laughs> they are kind of pointing out how, how ludicrous his question is, who touched me? I, I, you know, if you've ever been in a huge city, and there's people everywhere, and you're in a crowd, and you're just kind of getting pushed along with the crowd because the crowd's moving this way, and you get touched, and you go, well, "Who touched me?" And you know, there's like, a like hundred people, two hundred people. They, they look at him and go, "Well, why do you? How do we know who touched you?" There's a crowd, but Jesus did, and he was willing to stop what he was doing. And turn to that woman and address that woman's needs. And then, as I've already pointed out last, not only did he go to the house of Jairus, he touched his dead door. He was willing. He was willing, and he was able to save. Brothers and sisters, when you look at Mark 5, think of these miracles as pictures of redemption different people, different ages, different stages, different situations, one Lord who could and did and is willing to save. Let's pray together. Father, for your word, we are grateful. And we pray now that you would bless it into the minds and hearts of your people who have sat patiently listening. May we exalt Christ. May we see ourselves in these three people, these three situations. May we realize the great grace that we have experienced in our life. Even as John Newton said, I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I live. And all of that by your grace. Encourage your people. Help us to exalt our Savior. And it's in his name, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. What's the number? 422? 432. Let's turn, please, in our hymn books to 432.